Let's open the Scriptures to the book of Genesis, Genesis 3, and then the Gospel of John, chapter 15. We're going to be dealing with the teaching of Scripture concerning the creation of man and our fall into sin, and that is recounted for us in Genesis 3, and then also the results of that fall into sin. The Lord Jesus teaches us something about that in John 15. So Genesis 3, the first 13 verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We'll pause there and turn to the New Testament, Gospel of John, page 1147, 1147 in the Pew Bible. Where the Lord Jesus says a number of things, including our ability, our natural ability as sinners, which is not very great. So 15, verse 1, Jesus is speaking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 504, where we find the Word of God summarized by the church in Article 14 of the Belgic Confession. Here the Confession speaks about the creation and the fall of man and his incapability of doing what is truly good. Article 14, we believe that God created man of dust from the ground, and he made and formed him after his own image and likeness, good, righteous, and holy. His will could conform to the will of God in every respect. But when man was in this high position, he did not appreciate it, nor did he value his excellency. He gave ear to the words of the devil and willfully subjected himself to sin and consequently to death and the curse. For he transgressed the commandment of life which he had received. By his sin he broke away from God, who was his true life. He corrupted his whole nature. By all this he made himself liable to physical and spiritual death. Since man became wicked and perverse, corrupt in all his ways, he has lost all his excellent gifts which he had once received from God. He has nothing left but some small traces, which are sufficient to make man inexcusable. For whatever light is in us has changed into darkness. As Scripture teaches us, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it where the Apostle John calls mankind darkness. Therefore, we reject all teaching contrary to this concerning the free will of man. Since man is a slave to sin, and a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. For who dares to boast that he of himself can do any good when Christ says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him? Who will glory in his own will when he understands that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God? Who can speak of his knowledge since the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
In short, who dares to claim anything when he realizes that we are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God? Therefore, what the apostle says must justly remain sure and firm, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For there is no understanding nor will conformable to the understanding and will of God unless Christ has brought it about. As he teaches us, apart from me, you can do nothing. So far, Article 14. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing of Christ's redeeming work in hymn 39, all five stanzas. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we return to the Belgic Confession this afternoon, we, we find ourselves at the next and final step in God's work of creation. You might recall that Article 12 started out confessing God's creation. He created everything out of nothing just by the power of His Word. In Article 13, we confess that this good God didn't just leave or abandon His creation, but He continues to uphold all things and govern all things according to His plan. He does that every day, every moment. And now in Article 14, the confession goes back to day six of creation to confess the creation of God's most special creature, mankind. But even as we saw in Article 12, where certain angels rebelled against God, also in Article 14, not everything remains well with God's good creation. God creates man in a pristine condition, but soon man ruins it. In fact, Article 14 and closely related to it, Article 15, will be at pains to show just how far man has ruined and corrupted the very good work that God made on day six. So we're going to pause here over Article 14, or in Article 14, to confess this frankly disturbing and dark truth about our own fallen nature, its effect upon man and man's offspring. We're going to ask just how bad is it with humanity? What is left of man's original ability to please his maker? Does sinful man have a free will? Is he free to choose for God? These questions and more will have our attention as I bring you this word of the Lord. Only Christ can set free our enslaved wills. We'll take a look at man's voluntary enslavement and Christ's voluntary liberation. Article 14 begins with a basic statement that's foundational to everything that follows. We believe that God created man out of dust from the ground. That's a direct very close echo of Scripture, Genesis 2, 
which speaks simply and matter-of-factly about that one-time amazing event of creation of man from the dust of the ground. You know the story. God formed the dust into the shape of a human being. He breathed into that pile of dust the breath of life, and then man became a living being, just like that, in an instant. This means, brothers and sisters, very simply, that man did not evolve from some kind of existing creature like a pre-Adamite or a hominid or a monkey or something else. That error, as you know, is out there in the world of evolutionists, but it's also inside the Christian community. Some Christians believe that God did make Adam and Eve out of some pre-existing creature. But brothers and sisters, as a preacher of God's Word, I have to say to you, that's an error. I have to warn you against it because it's a perversion of what God plainly teaches in His Word. Why would some Christians believe this lie? Well, it's because the science of our day, the science of genetics, claims that today's humans descended from a group of several thousand individuals about 150,000 years ago. So, to those who accept that science, that means that Adam and Eve were not the first humans. They were not even the only humans made by God, or that the story Either that or the story of Adam and Eve is just an allegory, just a, a made-up story giving some historical idea of what took place, but not actually a factual event. So what it comes down to in, in the minds of those folks who believe what the science teaches is science trumps Scripture. I want to highlight that for a moment. Man-made science, right? The ideas of humans, sinful, corrupt humans, about what happened in creation when nobody was around, that concept trumps what the Bible plainly teaches. Brothers and sisters, don't be fooled. Do not get taken in by the so-called findings of, of humans about something that happened when no human was alive. Let's continue to believe the one who was there God, the one who brought all things into existence, the Lord. And he's very clear in the Bible, not only in Genesis 1, but in other places, I created the human race. I started it with just one single man from the dust of the earth, and from that one man I took of his rib and I made a woman, and from the two of them I brought them together in marriage. From the two of them I created the whole human family, the whole human race. Do not believe the empty, false claims of the evolutionists, but believe the truth taught by the Apostle Paul, Acts 17, and God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. One man is the parent of the human race. Now, in Article 14, our confession presses on to, me, to its main point, and God made and formed man after His own image and likeness, good, righteous, and holy. Like everything God made, 
man was good. And I want you to notice that too. Man was not neutral. To be good means more than to be without sin. It means able and fit to serve the Creator according to the Creator's design. Sometimes people have this idea that God created man without sin, yes, placed man in the Garden of Eden, and then man had to make a choice. Was, God going, was he going to serve God or was he going to serve himself? Was he going to honor his Maker or was he going to follow his own voice? the voice of the fallen creature, Satan. Man sometimes is pictured as starting out in, in a situation of neutrality from which he could go in either way, but the truth of Scripture is different. It's actually a lot more glorious. Man was created as a servant of God, a child of God, and man was put into the service of God. Article 14 highlights this high position and calling when it says, that man was made in God's own image, righteous and holy. You can find that in Genesis 1. He was righteous and holy, not neutral. That means he started out life, Adam, and then Eve with him, fully equipped for and fully engaged in the service of his Creator. He was set out in the garden to serve his God. Well, what does that mean, actually, to be created in the image of God, to be created in the image of God's likeness? Well, I think we will understand it doesn't mean that we look like God physically because we know God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. Well, could it have something to do with our spirits resembling or looking like God's spirit? And Paul, in Ephesians 4, tells us that that's the right line of approach. He says in Ephesians that we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He singles out righteousness and holiness as belonging to the image of God. So, to say it differently, we are like God when we act in righteousness and in holiness, just like Article 14 talks about. So, going back to Genesis 1, when God, or when man would set out to do his task, right, the task of ruling the earth, the task of subduing the earth for God's glory, then he would carry this out in righteousness and in holiness, and as he did that, he would be reflecting, at least to some extent, he'd be reflecting God's character. He would be doing that work the way God would do that work. I think we know this on a, on a human level as well, right? Sometimes uh, a son in a family looks physically nothing like his dad, but the way he speaks the way he does something. It reminds people who are observing that that's a lot like his dad. And they'll even say, you know what, he's just like his dad when he says those kinds of things. Or he's just like his dad when he does that kind of thing. Well, that's what Scripture means when it talks about us imaging God. 
Like in a mirror, we are made to reflect God's character in how we act and how we serve. And we're the only creature to do that. We're the only creature made to reflect God like this, not any other being, not the, the hulking whales in the ocean or the ginormous dinosaurs that once roamed the earth, not the very clever chimpanzee or gorilla, not the stunningly beautiful tigers of the jungle or the peacocks of the field, not the fleet-footed gazelle or the adept chameleon. All of those creatures and so many others are reflective of God's wisdom and of His power and ability, but only humans reflect God's holiness and righteousness. Only humans can act in a holy and righteous manner. And, and this is the horrible part, we humans who had that great privilege, we chucked it all away. Actually, it's more, it's worse than that. We not only threw away that high calling and service to God as His image, but at the same time we embraced, we voluntarily took on service to the devil as the devil's image. The Belgic Confession in its summary gives us no room to hide or find excuses. We blatantly admit, but man, when man was in this high position, he did not appreciate it, nor did he value his excellency. He gave ear to the words of the devil and willfully subjected himself to sin and consequently to death and the curse. He willfully subjected himself. In other words, we knew exactly what we were doing when we grabbed the fruit of the tree. We read that rather chilling account in Genesis 3. Satan is there speaking through the serpent. We know that from other parts of Scripture. And he sets up the temptation by raising questions and sowing doubts. The Lord had previously spoken very clearly to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. That's clear. But Satan comes with his innocuous-sounding question, did God actually say, did God really say that? And the woman engages with the sly-talking serpent until she sees things in a way she hadn't seen them before. Verse 6, chapter 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, when she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Eve and Adam, who was right there with her, and who's the one to blame, fully to blame alongside of her, compared what the Lord had said earlier to what the devil was now saying to them. They thought the matter over. Mentally, they weighed the options. You see, brothers and sisters, this was no uh, thoughtless stumbling into sin. 
This was no spur-of-the-moment matter, but as we confess in Article 14, our first parents willfully subjected themselves to sin, thinking they would gain everything. They realized only too late that they lost everything. They chose to believe what the devil said, his lie, over against what God said, the truth, and by that choice, they placed themselves in service to the dark Lord. They entered into voluntary enslavement. We entered into voluntary enslavement. That sounds at first like an oxymoron, like two opposites that can't really stand together, like talking about a straight circle or a living corpse, willful subjection, and now voluntary enslavement. I mean, who volunteers to become a slave? But it's not an oxymoron, it's a biblical paradox, meaning two things that appear to be opposite are in fact able to coexist together. They're, they're both true. As strange as it may sound, we humans freely chose our option. We chose to break away from God in order to serve the devil. And it gets even worse. The truth is that as sinners, like by nature, we continue to freely choose to serve the devil so that it's a matter of ongoing voluntary enslavement. This is how debased and polluted and wretched our condition is. Article 14 summarizes the bad news. Since man became wicked and perverse, corrupt in all his ways, he has lost all his excellent gifts which he once received from God. For whatever light is in us has changed into darkness. Therefore, we reject all teaching contrary to this concerning the free will of man, since man is a slave to sin. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that we, by nature, are slaves to sin? Which means we do not have, again, by nature, we do not have a free will. Sometimes I ask the catechism students, what about free will? Do we, as humans, have a free will? What do you think? And I always get a variety of answers. Yes, no, well, sort of, I don't know. And it's a bit of a tricky question because it depends on what you mean by free will. And the students sense that because on the one hand, we all know that we have certain freedoms to decide certain things. We all had the freedom to stand up if we wanted to and walk out of the doors back there. When I drive in my car, when you drive, I am free to decide to turn right or left, whatever. Every human has those kinds of freedoms to choose those kinds of things. The fall into sin has not left us as stocks and blocks. We're not robots, but we are responsible humans. So there's a level of choice that we have. But that's not the whole picture. What the confession is talking about here is the, the will to choose again to love and serve God. 
do we have that freedom, that ability? In the Garden of Eden, we were created to obey God. We started out freely and willingly choosing, happily choosing, to serve God every moment of every day until the time came when we made that opposite choice. So the question about free will concerns this. Can we simply go back and choose to serve again the Lord God? Do we get a do-over? That's the, the issue when we talk about freedom of the will in biblical terms. Are people free and able to reject Satan and sin and return to God and embrace God in love and obedience? Is our will able? Is it free to do that? And the answer to that question, biblically, is an unequivocal no. Jesus says it very clearly in John 6, which is quoted in Article 14, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No human can come to God or can come to Jesus unless the Father pulls him in. What happened in the Garden of Eden was a mammoth event with lasting consequences, consequences we are powerless to undo. We lost our previous ability to reflect God's image. We lost our previous ability to worship the Lord. We lost our previous ability to love and obey God's commandments, to love God and obey His commandments. Our, our nature changed. Out went the holiness. Gone was the righteousness we were created with, and in came the sinful desires. In came the unrighteousness, the transgression, and this became the new condition of our hearts. Previously, we were fully inclined to serve the Lord, and but now we are only inclined to serve the devil which at the same time means hating the Lord, even hating our neighbor. This is how terrible things became in the Garden of Eden. Our hearts became black. And because our hearts are, are black with sin, the only thing that we want now, the only thing we humans want now by nature is to please ourselves, which is service to the devil. We just... We need to grasp how, how terrible our plight is as human beings. No human being is an unwilling prisoner to sin. There's no person who is unwillingly trapped in transgression for the simple reason all of us want to sin by nature. We want to indulge our passions. We want to give in to our desires. Consequences be damned. That's the condition of our, of our lives. It's the result of throwing away our God-created ability to reflect God. This is the, the hole that we have dug for ourselves and thrown ourselves into, and this is why we have to look totally outside of ourselves to find hope 
There's no hope in, in, in this human or in any human. That hope has to come from outside, and that hope, thank God, does come. It comes to us in Jesus Christ, who alone can set free our enslaved wills. A slave who doesn't want to be a slave can at least have the hope of finding freedom somehow. Always is on the lookout for a way. But a slave who doesn't want to leave slavery, a slave who's quite content as a slave who loves to sin actually doesn't even want to be set free. And therefore, from, from the, that slave's side, it's literally impossible to conceive of freedom. He doesn't even want to think about it. He's happy, quote-unquote. He likes, anyway, that he is indulging his desires. Article 14 finishes with this, this hopeless impossibility when it quotes Jesus' words of John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. That truth speaks directly against any notion that fallen human beings have any ability to help ourselves. This is quite different from what Arminians teach. Maybe you've heard of that thing called Arminianism. That dates back to a fellow named Jacob Arminius from the 1500s. He was a learned Dutch professor of that time, and he did not take kindly to certain articles of the Belgian Confession. Article 16 really bothered him, and Article 14 really bothered him. Why? He didn't like the idea that God chose people and brought them to faith despite their sinful hearts against their natural inclinations. Arminius believed that men, that human beings, have both the responsibility to believe in God as well as the ability to, to come to faith of their own accord. And so Arminius taught that man's will is not enslaved to sin. He said that the, the will of man is, is hindered by sin, to a certain extent, sin gets in the way, said Arminius, and sin needs a bit of, our, our sinful nature needs some help from God, needs some, some grace from God, but in itself, he said, the will of man, it's got the ability to choose for God. Man can do it, just needs a little bump from the Lord. Arminius made this idea popular, and it's still being taught in many evangelical circles today. Man can do it if he tries. And maybe you've heard this saying, which is a typical Arminian saying, God helps those who help themselves. So you start the process, you, you help yourself, and God will come along and give you a, a little nudge with His grace. But it's not like that. The Bible undoes us. It strips us of any ability in ourselves. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do zero, nothing. And again, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And one more text from Ephesians 2, you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead, says Paul, not sick, not diseased, not injured in your sin, but dead, spiritually dead. And dead men can't do much, can they? Dead people can do nothing. And that's our lot. We're spiritually incapable of anything. That's the fate we brought upon ourselves. Well, brothers and sisters, you understand this is, this is the, the most radical, stark situation that humanity is in that we could possibly be in. Not only do we not have the ability to do good works, we don't even want to do good works. We don't even desire to do good works. As sinners descended from our rebellious father, Adam, we are born serving the devil. We've got no interest in serving God unless God takes hold of us. For that's the other side of this no-holds-barred gospel of the Lord Jesus. We humans in ourselves are a total write-off as sinners with not one ounce of goodness in us. There's no so-called redeeming qualities inside of ourselves, but, and this is the but of the gospel, Jesus Christ, by His own power, we were write-offs, but He writes us back into the story. He reaches out and He calls us spiritually dead people, like He did to Lazarus, right? Four days dead in the grave. Lazarus, come out. He says to you and me, come out. Come alive, and we do. That's what Jesus Christ does through the power of His Spirit. He, he regenerates us. He makes us spiritually alive again so that we start to love the Lord again. We can't help ourselves in any way, shape, or form, but Jesus voluntarily comes to us dead sinners, and He makes us alive. He sets us free from that enslavement we were talking about. This is also what Jesus talks about in John 15, verse 3. Already you are clean, he says, because of the word that I have spoken to you. So I've already made you clean. You, you're believers, you are clean. Full credit goes to Jesus Christ. A little bit later in verse 16, he'll say, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. You see how this works? God, God is in the driver's seat, not us humans. It's the Son, the Father, and the Spirit together. It was God, remember? This is how it goes all through history. It was God who came to Adam and Eden. Where are you? Adam was hiding in the bushes. It was God who called Abram out of Ur. What was Abram doing in Ur? Worshiping the moon god. Abram didn't go looking for the Lord. The Lord went looking for Abram. It was God who brought Israel out of Egypt. It was the Lord who returned His captive people from Babylon to their own land. It was the Lord Jesus who chose His own disciples. It was the Spirit of Jesus who went out on Pentecost Day to convert the hearts of 3,000 Jews who only weeks before had shouted and supported the death of Jesus on the cross. 
So it works like this. Any man, any woman, any child, anywhere in the world who ever turns in faith to Jesus is someone who has done so because the Spirit of Jesus has been at work in that person. And the Spirit of Jesus turns that heart to believe in the cross of Jesus. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's how it works. This is salvation by grace alone, God's work alone, period. By the voluntary obedience to his Father, the Lord Jesus, he broke the hold that Satan had over us. Against all human expectation, Jesus, the Son of God, willingly subjected himself to all the, the just punishments that we deserve to have fallen us. He did it in order to liberate us from the power of the devil. He did it all on Golgotha. Jesus shed his blood to free us, and now he sends forth his spirit to sweep us off our feet and bring us sinners into his Father's home so that we can start living the new life. That, too, is part of this, this wonderful gospel. As dead and helpless as we were as slaves, so now we are alive, we are energized by the Spirit of Christ, energized to render, to give new service to Him. We don't stay enslaved. Previously, we didn't want to serve the Lord. Now we do. Before, we had no ability to serve Jesus. Now we do. Not because of us, but because Christ lives in us. Before, we were miserable wretches, blindly following the desires of our flesh. But now, we are saved. We are rescued sons and daughters desiring to follow the will of our Lord and our Savior, our brother and our Father. It's true, our sinful natures haven't disappeared. And our sinful nature still exerts an ugly influence, still has a powerful influence on us all too often, so that we need daily cleansing of our guilt. And yet, yet that that. that that sinful nature, it's being crucified. It's being put to death by the power of Christ's Spirit. More and more, the Spirit works in us to crucify, to, to, to kill off that old nature and to bring to life our new nature. What's that all about? The new nature, well, it goes back to Eden. We're being recreated so that we can once again reflect, not Satan, but the Lord. That's where we're at right now, brothers and sisters. That, this, is, this is the gospel moment that we live in. The Spirit is transforming us. Things not only can change, they will change for the children of God because of the Lord Jesus. He tells us in plain words in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears what? much fruit. 
he, she will bear much fruit. What kind of fruit? Love and obedience to God. That's the fruit he's talking about. No longer are we slaves to Satan who only know and want to live in that sinful way, but now we are renewed servants of our Creator, our Savior. Now the Spirit of the Lord Jesus lives in us, restoring to us those very gifts that we once threw away in our rebellion. He's restoring to us righteousness, holiness, goodness. The Lord now is refashioning us into the very image of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can make a new start, a new beginning of heartfelt, thankful service to our ever-gracious God. I'm going to hook into this morning. This is what Jesus says. This is the gospel promise to you, to me, to all God's people that the transforming power of the Spirit is in us and He will do His work in us. Do you trust Jesus when He says that? Because sometimes we don't see the results we want to see, right? Not right away. Has sin got its grip on you, a particular sin? Are you falling into repeated patterns of disobedience though you don't want to? Do you give in to the same temptation over and again but it bothers you and you hate it and you wish you could break it? Then know this, that hatred you feel, that sorrow you're dealing with, that is a sure sign that the Spirit of Christ is in you because you wouldn't be sorrowful before God, and you wouldn't hate it unless the Spirit of Christ was in you. And His promise is this, John 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Ask whatever you wish. He's not talking about asking for a Ferrari or millions of dollars. Ask whatever you wish in the fruit-bearing task I set for you. In other words, if you've got some sin in your life that's stopping you from producing the fruit of obedience, Ask that that sin be put to death and it will be done for you. Trust this word too of our God. And as Jesus says elsewhere, keep asking, keep knocking, keep praying for the Lord to break sin's hold on you and it will come to pass. Christ will do it in you. That's what He died for. This is what He lives for. Jesus glorifies His Father by transforming sinners like you and me into children who 
once again reflect His righteousness and holiness. That's the fruit-bearing that He's after. So let's you and me do this. Desire it. Pray for it. Work on it. And receive it from above. It is ours to receive. Amen.